Okay, I'm going to read our scripture this morning. It's on Matthew chapter 18. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to put it up on your phone or if you're in a pew Bible, it's on page 823. We'll start in verse 15. We've camped here for a bit. This is actually the fourth time we've read this passage in a row, so I thought I would take it uh, this morning. So Matthew 18, verses 15 to 35. Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children all that he had and the payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to them, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we've been sitting in this passage for a number of weeks. I ask that you would speak to us freshly this morning. You apply these words in deep ways. I have in my mind those who've been carrying things for a long time, questions, um, pain, places where they feel unsafe or unseen, places where they have lost hope. By your gospel of what Christ, you help us see your grace that we might actually apply your word to this for our lives. So I ask Holy Spirit, you would speak, speak powerfully, um, speak tender, healing, word, and word correction. We do that as well. And then it's really clear that we need you to open eyes and ears. passage, uh, would you speak a specific, beautiful, tender word to them? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if we didn't meet yet, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and um, I'm thankful you're with us. If you haven't been with us, we have been in this text for quite a while, and maybe for obvious reasons, maybe for not obvious reasons. So let me just kind of tell you why. As we think about where we are culturally, as we think about where we are as a church, as we think about kind of where we are individually, this feels like a really practical, important passage and a passage where there's just a ton of confusion. I mean, the Bible says a lot of things about peacemaking and forgiveness, and sometimes you can feel like it's talking out of both sides of its mouth. Sometimes it says that we should not rebuke a fool or they'll do us harm, and then it says rebuke a fool lest he harm you. And you're like, wait, what, what do I do with that? Sometimes it says to go to the person if you've offended them. Sometimes it says you should go to them if you've offended them. Sometimes it says go to them if you've offended them. Sometimes it says go to them if they've offended you. That's what it is in that space. And you see also places where it says like 
if they repent, forgive them. And then you see commands just simply to forgive with no qualifier. And so we've kind of sat in this text for a little bit asking the Spirit of God to make us the kind of people that reflect the gospel good news of what it means that he's a peacemaking God. So the first week we just sat in this parable Jesus tells, just kind of grounding us in the reality that peacemaking starts with understanding God has made peace with us. And the way Jesus tells this story, we're meant to be blown away by the idea that we could receive such extravagant mercy and grace and then be resistant or refuse to extend grace to other people. The shocker of this parable is that somebody would be forgiven an incalculable debt and then would go and choke out somebody else for just a fraction of what they owed. And the application is obvious to just sit in the beauty and glory and mind-blowing reality of how much we've been forgiven and to let that actually be the theme or the anthem or the framework by which you relate to everybody else. And very few things in our world tell us that. Very few things in our world tell us, you've received so much, now go give. They more tell us things about what we're owed or how we should be outraged or how we should defend ourselves or these other messages we just hear so often. And so it's a corrective as well as a healing kind of message because it offers hope to the places of brokenness in your life. So we just camped there the first week. And then we just said, hey, there's a reality in this passage that we should bring our pain to the church, but there's been times when the church has actually been the place of our pain. So we just sat for a week in the idea of what do we do when there's a pain that's been caused by the body of Christ in these kinds of relationships, right? Because the church is an authority structure. There's pastors and deacons and there's things like that inside the church, but there's also church sitting next to you. And so we carry pain from people that have led us as well as people that have sat by us and And we just brought that pain to Jesus and asked for help in that space. And then we last week looked at the idea that God has actually put a structure in place for for our good. He's given us shepherds and teachers to come alongside of us to actually move us towards the heart of God. And so so just some exploration of like why the church might actually exist, why that might be a good idea, and, and the ways it actually could benefit us as a community to be constantly reminded of the good news of the gospel. So that's kind of where we've been. And this morning, I want to just slow down again and talk specifically through verses 15 to 20 about steps towards like personal peacemaking. What you'll notice is the word forgive doesn't actually show up in verses 15 to 20, but it's the question that Peter asks as soon as he hears these instructions. So, So what he's aiming at is How do I actually move towards somebody and forgive them? How do I go to somebody and make peace with them? How do I actually move past just simply in my heart saying, I won't hold it against that person. It's actually moving towards reconciliation. And now we're into some nuance because we normally use just a blanket word like forgive to mean lots of different things. And last week or maybe two weeks ago, we we just used some teaching from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, that talked about four promises that we make when we forgive somebody. And I'll just say them to you again. He says, when we, when we say we're going to forgive someone, we're saying, I won't dwell on this incident. We're saying, I'm not going to bring this incident up again or use it against you. I'm not going to talk to others about this incident. And, and I won't let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. All sounds amazing. But what do you do when there's like constant pain or there's constant conflict or there's more that keeps happening? And so Ken Sandy says there's actually an attitude of forgiveness that's marked in that first commitment of I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to hold Forgiveness is to release the debt that somebody owes. The word actually has like accounting language in it. And it's simply to say, I won't make you pay for this. That's what it means to forgive somebody. And the good news is you can do that if the person doesn't even know they offended you or if the person has passed away or if it's unsafe to actually be around them or contact them, you can still actually release that debt and say, I'm not going to make you pay for that. Even though I may never speak to you again or I don't have the opportunity to actually be reconciled. Now we can nuance a little bit the posture or attitude of forgiveness versus the process of reconciliation. And we use the word to kind of speak of of both, but uh, step two, three, and four of not bringing it up or not talking to other people or not letting this stand between us, that would require some kind of reconciliation. 
Because if there's an act of harm going on, you, you should bring that up. You, you should talk about that. You should actually name it with that person. And this text would say if you name it with that person and it doesn't go well, you should name it to other people. And so it's not contradictory to this passage. He's saying there's step one is this posture or attitude of forgiveness that you can do if there is no reconciliation. We've recommended a book by this guy named Brad Hambrick, and he, he used an illustration of geometry, and he says, you've heard that, that all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. And then he says, all, all reconciliation has forgiveness in it, but not all forgiveness ends in reconciliation. So it's helpful to nuance a little bit. Some of the pain you feel and some of the confusion you have is when we've smushed all of it together, and you've been told to forgive your abuser, and that means stay close to them. Or don't tell anybody that you were abused. And so it's really confusing. How do I release the debt to this person and not make them pay the same way God's not making me pay? And yet, how do I acknowledge that there's an incident here that needs to be talked about? So there's an a attitude of forgiveness, and then there's this process of reconciliation. And we just said it's helpful to make that distinction. And so, so this text is actually about how does reconciliation take place? And it's required that you have a desire to forgive to be able to step towards what he commands us to in this text. But, but it's important just to notice, like, this is not all Jesus says about peacemaking. And in fact, in Matthew, he said a lot about peacemaking. I thought about it, even the way it, it opens in the book, it, it's conflict. He's born into conflict in the world. That the, so many ways, Matthew is about making peace. We see in the Sermon on the Mount, this beatitude, these postures of the heart. To, to be humble and to be merciful and to be even contrite and to be broken. And then it says explicitly in chapter 523, if someone has, uh, if you know you're, someone has something against you and you're there at the altar, you should leave your gift there and go and try to be reconciled to them. We're told later in that chapter that we shouldn't retaliate when things are, are done to us. We're told that we should actually go past that to actively loving our enemies, which is really complicated. Then he says you should pray for those who persecute you. And then there's a prayer in chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer in their space. He, he tells us to pray like that God would forgive us as we forgive others. And then he says, and if you won't forgive, then you haven't actually been forgiven. It's pretty complicated what he says. And then in, in, right when we need like some nuance, he comes in chapter 7. He tells us not to judge other people, right? to leave, leave judgment to God. He tells us to have a humble posture to look at the log in our own eye. Does some of this sound familiar? Look at the log in your own eye before you deal with the speck in your brothers. But then he says there are people that are dangerous. They're like dogs and pigs that will devour and harm you. So, so don't let yourself be vulnerable to people that are unsafe. And again, now we're going like, man, these feel complicated and complex and maybe contradictory. Like, don't... don't uh, withhold from them, love them, actively forgive them, pray for them. Hey, be careful about them. Protect yourself from them. These things feel complicated to hold together. And then we actually go into chapter 9 and we see like our deepest problem isn't something in the physical realm. It's that we need forgiveness from God. There's a healing story, but Jesus first announces that your sins are forgiven. And it kind of outrages the religious leaders, but he's naming, hey, your biggest problem is your lack of forgiveness, your, your need to be forgiven by God. And then actually, as we come down to the end of the book, we'll see Jesus break bread with his disciples. He'll institute communion that we'll celebrate here in a few minutes. And he says, this blood and this cup represents my covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So in so many ways, from start to finish, Matthew is about forgiveness and reconciliation. It's what God did for us to be reconciled to him and how that shapes our relationship. I say all of that because if we just hit this kind of out of nowhere, it can feel either too simplistic or maybe shallow or maybe just hard to wrap your mind around. It can be hard to understand, what do I do with these kinds of passages? Because they actually cut against what comes natural to us. My outline's going to be four G's, and they're this. To go to that person is the first thing he says. So we should actually go. And the temptation is to not go, because when you go, you open yourself up to more pain, you open yourself to being accused, you open yourself to someone saying, oh yeah, you're going to be frustrated about that, what about what you did, right? So there's a temptation just to hold back and not go. And then he actually tells us that we should keep the goal in mind, is the second point that he makes, of actually restoration of a relationship. But our goal often is just winning the argument, just being proved 
right and justified in our feelings. And he says, no, the goal is actually to, to have restoration and, and to win your brother back. He tells us to go and get other people involved in, in a redemptive way. That's the third G, to get others involved. And normally when we get others involved, it's only to build a coalition or to build an alliance or to tell our side of the story ahead of time so that when you encounter this person, you know how much they've hurt me rather than have this redemptive framework of bring other people in to help you be heard and to help you actually hear. And then he says we should grow in our response that the person's sin and brokenness needs more help and care and focus and highlighting how broken it actually is. And, and we tend to just cash out and to stop and say enough. I can't do, I can't do anymore. I think going, keeping the goal in mind, getting others involved and growing in our response, all are challenging things. And they only make sense if there is a God who came. If there's a God who kept the relationship at the center. If there's a God who actually spoke the truth to us about our brokenness. If there's a God who actually escalated things all the way to his own death to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could actually be forgiven. You don't see a God that minimizes, that pulls away, that stays isolated. You see a going God that comes and reconciles with his people. So that frames like motivation for how we engage a text like this. And, and I say all that because, again, it's complicated. Uh, even when it comes to like what forgiveness is, we're confused by, by what it's not. Right? We, we've been told we should forgive and forget. We've been told don't, don't ask for forgiveness or extend it until you actually feel it. You would be disingenuous if you said, I forgive you, before you, you have those feelings. We worry that if we forgive somebody, we're excusing their behavior or letting them off the hook or, or perpetuating acts of violence or, or abuse. Like if I forgive an abuser, aren't I saying it's no problem? Or actually maybe saying I'm pretending it didn't actually hurt me that bad. When we dismiss somebody and say it's no problem, don't worry about it, as if it didn't actually cut us to the bone. There, there's places where what we think about forgiveness has to be reimagined and actually I think escalated. And Jesus does that with us in his teachings and in his life. I want you to see that God takes peacemaking really serious. He doesn't just forget. He actually engages this thing with his whole heart. He doesn't let us off the hook. He pays the ultimate price for us in such a way that we actually now can engage in a relationship with him. It's beautiful what he's done. And he sets that up as the foundation for these steps. So not just simple little steps. They're actually revolutionary steps. Jesus is teaching us what it's like to be his disciple, what it's like to follow him. And things like loving your enemies and praying those who persecute you are outside our normal framework of how we should be when yet it's at the heart of the gospel. It's what God modeled for us in the person and work of Jesus. Hold on to that big reality because I want you to actually walk with me through this with your big situation in your like, what is the place where, as I'm talking, we've been seeing this passage for a couple of weeks, you've had a lot of yeah, buts and ifs and you don't understand. And it could be something that's like really long in its duration. It's been so many years, you're like, hey, that only works with fresh wounds. It only works with, with new hurts. Maybe it's something that, that has a power dynamic to it where you, you've tried to name it and it blew up in your face and you brought tenderly and you followed this passage the way you understood it and it actually seemed to backfire and you were made to be the bad one and you were the one who was removed from the fellowship rather than the person who was the offender. Maybe there's places where as you attempted to follow the biblical commands, it seemed to backfire. Maybe it's a place that like nobody knows about. Maybe it's a place of like deep shame, things you'd rather not talk about, things from a previous life. Another city, another school, another relationship, another, another social media feed where you actually have not actually brought this into the light. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I think it would be helpful for you if you held that thing in your mind while we walk through these four points of this text so you can make application to that specific, painful, distant, hard thing. Because I think God has a word for you, and again, the text is really nuanced, but but I think he has a word for you for this thing that you might be tempted to think is outside the range of this passage. Like, like it doesn't fit your specific situation. So, so hold on to it. 
while we walk through this text. And look with me in verse 15. The text is actually organized in four like commands or ifs. There's four kind of progressive steps, and I'm kind of lumping a couple of them together. We're going to spend all of the next week on, on essentially this last step of what does it mean to, to grow the response and bring it to the church. We're going to just mention that today. We'll spend a whole time next week on how do you do this in the church? What does it mean for the church to, to hold that tension and process of reconciliation and even move towards like church discipline if necessary? How does active love look? So we'll, we'll get to that space, but I think if we can use these G's, it will help us. The first one is to simply go. Look in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. We've seen other places in Matthew where if you've sinned, then you go. So you're always the one who is supposed to be the initiator, either in the forgiveness or in the asking of forgiveness. This is the log in your own eye versus the speck. It's, it's a matter of perspective. It doesn't mean you're the worst. It doesn't mean you're the one who's most responsible. It doesn't mean you're the one who carries all of the burden. But the Christian is free to take the risk to move towards reconciliation, either from chapter 5 to say, I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? Or to say, hey, you've sinned against me. Can we talk about that? And the first point is simply just to go. It humanizes the person. It communicates a level of hope that God actually cares about this. It it actually um, dignifies the situation and says, hey, this thing between us actually matters. You matter enough that I don't want to just dismiss this. I don't want to just pretend it's not a big deal. I want to actually bring it to you in such a way that you can actually respond to it. And again, God as the initiating, peacemaking, going God models this for us that he didn't wait for us to be ready he didn't wait for us to be aware of how much we had sinned he came into our world and died a death in our place so that we could be reconciled because christ goes we can actually go and you have to go because people don't always know there are times where like someone maybe has brought something to you maybe you could experience it that way where someone brought a wound to you and you had no idea or you knew there was some kind of attention, you didn't really know what it was, so you just dismissed it and went on, and then 18 months later, they bring it back up, and they can quote what happened on that night in that place and what you said and how it made them feel, and you're pretty oblivious to the whole deal. If that's ever happened to you, then surely it's a situation where it could happen for somebody else. Maybe they actually just don't know, or they don't know the impact of it. Or maybe they do know, and they do know the impact of it, and there's a gracious thing about going to open up the conversation to let them know that you are willing to have it. There's people that um, I've actually been told, do not contact me anymore. So I'm not contacting them anymore. That kind of, that's weird. Just launch that out there. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> but, but if that person were to say, hey, I would love to talk about how you hurt me some number of years ago, it would give me a chance to move towards them, right? So, so whether they know it or know the impact or maybe they don't know how to engage it, when you go to them, you open up a space for them to actually engage. And it says share with them their faults, the, the thing that they did, to actually give it a voice and name it in spaces where, where the thing that actually harmed the relationship is given dignity, And you can actually say, this thing happened. Now, I think it's crucial that we bring it in such a way that doesn't come having already brought the accusation. Like the steps of this are ways to discern what actually happened. And the crazy thing is, you will do all of these steps in your head by yourself. You'll hold court. You'll grab evidence. You will actually engage in judgment. You'll determine what they need or don't need all by yourself in your head if you don't Bring it to them soon enough or in a curious way? Could you go in such a way that actually brings a curiosity or an openness that maybe there's more than you understand? Like, can you actually make it easy for them to engage with you? The difference between I want to talk about this horrible thing you did that ruined my life versus, hey, there's this thing between us. There's a lot of it I don't understand, but it's really impacted me. Could we talk about that? That second one doesn't minimize things. You're not like, giving 10 positives so you can crush them with a negative. You're simply saying, hey, I want to talk about something that's really significant to me, and I'm going to come at it from a curious, open posture that I don't know everything. Which gets us into why we want to bring some other people as well. But we're told and commanded 
to go to that person. Like in Luke 17, say, watch your heart, he says. Would you go and, go and rebuke someone who sinned? And if they repent, then, then forgive them. It's one of those complicated passages. But, but it takes courage and compassion. We're actually commanded to go. To go and bring this to them. To go and actually ask and engage this offense. And I think there's places where uh, as soon as we say that, all the qualifying questions of safety and are they open, all that stuff kind of floods into our mind, which is why this idea of keeping the goal in mind comes up next. He says go, and he says go, show them their fault between just you and them alone. And, and if you actually have communicated to them and they listen to you, then you've gained your brother. To keep the goal in mind, not of simply proving something, but actually restoring their relationship. E- even if it's something that like, you don't have hope, you're going to be close to them again. The idea of that person ultimately being restored to God, actually, actually their sins actually being forgiven, being the goal of the interaction, which is different than simply naming things so you can prove your case. To bring something to prove why you deserve to be hurt is very different than to bring something to actually gain your brother or sister. It humanizes them, and it actually puts you in a space where you understand from Jesus' parable that you need grace because you've deserved judgment as well, and so you're extending grace to the one who actually deserves your judgment. You put yourself in a space where you actually understand that you have a need while you communicate their need to them. I think that sets them up to receive, because all of us are multidimensional. There's a lot going on in us. And when we're hurt, we tend to highlight just one thing about them. Like they are just a liar, or they are just angry, or they are just aloof and don't care, or they just keep repeating this thing. And you reduce them down to that one thing. And the idea of gaining your brother or sister actually pulls you into the awareness, wait, this is actually a person. This is not an an event or a situation or a caricature. Tim Keller just came out with a great book on forgiveness, and he talks about like a caricature drawing what normally happens in those drawings that makes them comedic is you take one feature of a person and you exaggerate it. So maybe there's something about their ears, and so you give them these huge ears in that space. And everybody knows who it is, and it's comedic because you've exaggerated one part of them. And he says in our hearts when we struggle to forgive, we often exaggerate one part, one activity, one behavior, one, one pattern, one moment, and make that be the thing that actually defines the person. But, but to keep the relationship in mind, to actually want to win them is to humanize them. Miroslav Volf is a a Croatian, grew up in all kinds of conflict and war. He's written a couple of amazing books. One is called The End of Memory, and one is called Exclusion and Embrace. If you're wrestling with like nuance and you're like, man, this doesn't feel safe and I don't know what to do with this, let me just affirm his writings to you. But he says um, that forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. I stop thinking about them as if they're human. Even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners, I forget that I'm one who needs grace. But no one can be in the presence of God, of the crucified Messiah for very long without overcoming this double exclusion. The gospel says that I actually deserve way more than I ever received. And I am more loved than I ever imagined. I'm actually more guilty than I can comprehend, and I'm more forgiven and set free because of what Christ has done than I'll ever fully set my mind on. To engage another person with that same gospel hope is what Jesus has in mind here, to gain your brother, to to see them as a human who, who of course has sinned in ways they probably don't understand. In fact, the parable would say in ways they can't even calculate, and you're just one little slice of their relationships. Of course they deserve judgment. And Christ came and made a way for that judgment to be forgiven and set free so they could be forgiven. And you have needed that grace. And from that space, then you can move towards them and show that kind of grace to keep the relationship, the goal in mind of winning that person, not simply winning the argument is a massive teaching in this text. And what would be different in the ways that you relate to people if you kept that in your mind? I don't just want to make you see it. I don't want to make you understand it. I want to actually win you. Even if we can't be in a relationship because you're not a safe person, I still want you to be won over to grace. And can my 
relationship with you and my words with you and my interactions with you make it plausible for you to believe that you could be forgiven and set free? Could I, could I even win a brother or sister back to Jesus in ways that we don't have a close relationship because of safety issues, but, but they could actually be restored? That, that is the goal. It's not just lifting the awkwardness or just moving on. It needs to be bigger than that to motivate us to step into what is really, really difficult and to see them as a human, one who can receive grace and desperately needs grace, helps actually give you courage and compassion to move towards them. So, so go and keep the goal in mind. And then, because this is hard, he says, get others involved. He says in verse 16, but if you won't listen, right, if you bring it, you talk about the gospel, you, you try to win their heart, you communicate the grace and mercy of Jesus, and they still refuse to understand or listen. They can't take it in. Take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, he's referencing a passage in Deuteronomy 19 that you can't have court without witnesses. You can't hear an accusation unless there's somebody there who kind of watched it happen. So, so the first thing about this is about justice. It's about people not being misunderstood and misclassified, right? This grotesque exaggeration of them, or even, even something that wasn't fully true or did not actually happen that way, that your memory might be different. To actually bring a relationship around this person is about justice and mercy, both for you and for them. And I think embedded in that is the idea of help. Hey, peacemaking is really, really hard. Like it actually hurt. There were real consequences. It affected your circle of friendships. It affected your church. It affected things at your job. Your holidays are different. The ways you relate to lots of other people. You've lost relationships. It is really complicated. And when Jesus says, hey, as you're trying to make peace, that there's a way that God's designed the community to function where you can get help in relationships. Just thought through that a little bit and like thought about four ways that community helps us. The, the first way is that community helps us see ourselves more clearly. To sit down with people and to tell the story and talk about it opens me up to the idea that there's things about myself or about my behavior, my reactions that I don't see clearly. James 4 says, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Isn't it that you, you want something, but you don't get it? You have desires that are unmet, and then you actually move towards killing and coveting because you can't have what you desire. It gets really intense really fast. And the idea in the, uh, bringing this to the community is there's things about your desires and your heart that are hard for you to see. All of us are driven by our desires, but we're somewhat blind to them. And you know some of your desires, but there are desires below those desires, below those desires. And the community is actually designed to be a place where you can see yourself more. Where, where this in, in a relationship with other people who can hold up a mirror to you is such a gift. Not to tell you that you shouldn't have been hurt. Not to excuse or explain away your pain. But to actually fill out the story and to help you actually engage with your own heart more clearly. So the community comes in just this one moment. It's not explaining it away. It's not saying it's not a big deal. But the community can help you actually listen and hear. can help you see how much that pain caused the other person and can help you experience the other side of the relationship. It is really hard when the anxiety and anger and accusations are firing, all that stuff that's happening inside your brain to listen clearly. You're in fight or flight or flee or fawn or whatever the F word you want to use mode in that space. It's super hard to just sit and receive. So the community creates kind of a, a buffer not to protect you from that person, but just to hold the space for a little bit. Imagine Jesus' understanding here, not go tell on them to a bunch of people so all these other people hate them as much as you do. Imagine that's not what he's saying. Imagine he's saying, this is really hard. If you've tried to go to them and it didn't go well, bring other people around who love you, who are rooted in the gospel, who, who understand what's happening, who are for both of you, and sit down with them and let them help you hear each other. Like it helps you see yourself more clearly. It helps you see that other person more clearly. Third, it helps you see God's word more clearly, which is about wisdom. If the first one is about self-awareness and the second one is about empathy, the third one is about wisdom. To sit down with people who know passages of the Bible that maybe you have forgotten or never understood, 
who can bring to bear? What does God actually say about this difficult situation? For you not to be on your own in the moment, but have the wisdom of the community speaking the scriptures to you. And again, we just have kind of said, even in Matthew, there's some things that, that feel not necessarily contradictory, but they're hard to hold together. There's places that say, before they ever ask anything, forgive them. And there's other places that say, if they repent, forgive them. So what do I do? There's passages that say, go to this person. There's passages that say, some people are unsafe to go to. So what do I do? The community is actually a gift to us to sit in those places and help us sort that out. Help us actually think about what God would have us to do. Help us pray. Help us actually discern. Help us bring passages to mind and to bear. What does it mean to love your enemies and pray for those? How do you actually engage with people that persecute you? What does it mean to lay down your rights? There's passages that say things like, why not let yourself be taken advantage of? But there's also times that would be really unwise. So how do you, how do you know? And man, it would be really intimidating if in the height of every intense situation, you had to stick the landing on all those difficult situations. What if God's designed the community to prayerfully sit with you, open up God's word with you, and help you actually discern how these things fit together? Because here's the deal. The commands don't cancel each other out. It's not as if in one place it says you should forgive, in another place it says only forgive if they repent, and so they cancel each other. Both of those are true. What we're doing in so many ways with the scriptures is not looking for one key but looking for a composite sketch. The Bible gives us so many stories and commands and examples of what God promises to do, what he tells his people it looks like. You have a lot of information in that composite sketch of what peacemaking looks like. The Bible is wise. God is wise. He's given us words of warning for dangerous people that you need to hear. He's given you words of hope. He's given you words of boundaries. He's given you, you words of charity. He's give, given you words to actually help you engage in tough situations. And, and the community is designed to help you navigate those tough situations by bringing God's word to bear on the situation. I wish we were a people of the book from top to bottom so that when you find yourself in tough situations, your reflex question is, what does the scripture say about this? And it would be hard, based on pain and hurt and trauma and confusion and shame, to see all of that clearly. So letting other people come and bring those things to bear is such a help to you. And, and fourth, to help you see the gospel clearly and how it applies to the situation. To help you not minimize the moment, but actually have hope. If the first one is about self-awareness and the second one is about empathy and the third one is about wisdom, this is about hope for transformation. To have somebody continue to remind you that Christ came, he died, he loves, he sacrificed, he paid the penalty, and that shapes how you can see this person and what you can do with the situation. Like there is help in the community for us to be a gospel community that speak reflexively to each other about the beauty of what God has done for us through his son Jesus to make our ourselves right with him as we trust his work on our behalf for that to be the foundation of how we see the world would be a massive gift to our brothers and sisters when they're struggling with the tricky situations of somebody who is perpetually hurting them something that happened a really long time ago something that maybe feels small and so you feel petty to bring it up something that actually is really dangerous or criminal to actually bring those things to bear is an important step and god's given us resources in the body. One of the problems in the church is that people have brought concerns, one or two people have heard that, and they have mishandled the situation. They've taken one passage and have made that apply to everything. So like someone will bring a situation in a marriage of, of abuse. And if the only card you play with that person is you're supposed to forgive, you can send that person back into an abusive situation, and the church has done that. And the church rightly and beautifully, because of God's mercy, is being exposed in those spaces to see the, the fallacy of that. It's not sufficient. It doesn't actually match the heart of God. So the idea of having more people involved is a protection to us simply applying one passage to the exclusion of so many others so we don't mishandle delicate situations. To, to bring it to the community is to actually round out the portrait so that we know actually how to respond to hard situations. This would mean we would need to go slow, 
This means that if somebody is in a relationship with you and they say, hey, I think we need to bring other people involved in this to help us talk through this, that should flag for you that you don't see everything clearly. It should trigger for you not defensiveness. It should trigger for you humility to go, oh, what a gift because I can't see what's going on. I can't see actually how we're stuck. And having somebody, when they say to you, I think we should bring a couple of people to help us listen, that should trigger humility in you. And because the gospel is true, it doesn't trigger a courtroom setting where now you're going to be judged for your righteousness. That's already happened. You were proven unrighteous, and Christ paid the penalty for that. So now you can stand with these people, hear what they have to say. You can receive it, examine it, and ask what might be true about what they're saying. Rarely does anybody have all of the situation. And something happens when somebody says, hey, you hurt me when you did blank. And your mind fires to either that you didn't mean to do that or they did something else or you were responding to that and you tend to excuse or explain away that moment. When somebody's at the place where they're saying, hey, can we get some other folks because we're we're stuck. Normally what's happened is as they've brought concerns, you've dismissed them. You've tried to tell them why they shouldn't feel that way or why that didn't actually happen or why they shouldn't actually go that space in their heart. You've explained away their hurt in such a way that didn't win them over, didn't actually resolve it. And they're bringing other people now to help you hear each other. When that happens, friends, quiet your heart, trust Jesus for your righteousness, and realize you need to avoid being defensive and you can receive. Of course there is more that's true. Of course you're not admitting that you maliciously set out to harm them in every way that they've imagined that you've harmed them, but there's still some kind of a truth in what they experience that you can acknowledge even while this community helps you acknowledge more things that are true. You're not canceling out one or another. The community lets you actually slow down and receive. So when someone says to you, hey, I think we should bring some other people involved in this, flag that as they love you, they care about you, and they're trying to bring more resources to bear in the relationship. It's not that you are now on the doghouse and you're now on the outside. It's a radical act of love to bring other people in. If the community is rooted in the gospel, and is asking, what does God's word say about this? Okay, if you are asked to be brought into a situation, realize you're not being brought in to be the judge and juror of that situation. You're being asked to hold a space where these people can actually sit with each other and they can hear each other. That will take you being gracious, trusting what Christ has done on your behalf so you don't get rattled, trusting that what Christ has done is big enough for them. It will create a space where you can actually hold really complicated things. You can even say, hey, I don't know what we should do about that. Let's stop and pray. You don't have to have the answers to all that. You just stop and pray and then ask out loud, hey, what do you think God's word says about this? And if we can't fix it tonight, we can't understand it tonight, we want to stop and go, let's come back again in a week. Let's pray about this. Let's fast for a while. Let's come back together and then discuss. Realize when someone brings you in to a situation, they're not asking you to be the judge and jury and authority. That's another step where they bring it to the church, and there's a whole other thing we'll talk about next week. What they're asking you to do is to hold a space of hope for them to acknowledge what God has said, to bring the gospel to bear on those situations, and help them actually not cancel out truths, but hear each other. To, to humanize each other, to, to lead with empathy in ways that you make it possible for them to hear without feeling like if they acknowledge something, they're declaring that they're a horrible, terrible person that's unworthy of love. You want to create a space where their brokenness can be seen and still be redeemed, where what they've done can actually be acknowledged and not dismissed or minimized, and they can still actually be loved. The community is essential in this space. The step to to bring it to other people is meant to be a help. It's a justice, mercy help, and and it's a process help to help us see ourselves, the other person, God's word, and the gospel more clearly. And, And can we just make a reflex of this? If somebody says, that's not what I said, or that's not what I meant, don't say, well, that's what you said. What else could that mean? Let them tell you what they meant. There's this thing that happens where we've already prejudged somebody, and I've been in situations where someone is saying, that's not what I said, that's not what I meant, and the person is just driving it down, saying, that is what you said, that's the only thing that could mean, and there's no way they can go forward. When someone says, 
something you've rehearsed for a decade, oh man, I, I didn't mean that. Or that's not what I meant. Or I don't think that's what I said. Or, or as I'm talking in this moment now to you, it's not what I, what I meant to say. Let them actually tell you what they meant. They might repent. There have been times with Adrian where, where she quoted me back verbatim. She said what I said. And hearing her say it, it's like, oh my gosh, I have thought that. I'm so sorry. Like, I don't mean that. I said that, but I don't actually mean that. Or I mean more than that. And having it in the light has let me actually repent. But it would be really unhelpful and we would be really stuck if Adrian would stop and say, well, that's what you said. I'm going to hold you to that. What else could you have meant? You said that out loud. I heard that. I can't unhear that. That's the way it's always going to be. To stop and let somebody actually repent, let them clarify, let there be more maybe that's there. I just feel like we get in a space sometimes like as a, as a simple idea when someone says it's not what I meant or that's not what I was saying or something to communicate. Let them actually clarify. Because you're not on trial. The trial's already happened. Christ has already held judge and jury trial over those things. So you're free to actually be wrong, to be misunderstood, to misunderstand, and then to clarify. And I think a great question for us to ask each other is, hey, what do you wish they understood about this? Can you ask curious, open questions rather than make somebody defend themselves, which just feels like you're not after the relationship, you're after who is going to be right? I think there's places where if we could see the community coming alongside to hold a redemptive space that's filled with the wisdom of God's word, we would do really well to engage with what this passage calls us to. That's hard. It'll take a long time. We'll do that really poorly, but the gospel will actually help us engage in that. So, so go, go to them. Keep the goal in mind. There's involved to actually help you because these are tricky, hard situations, and you need a space where you can explore, by God's grace, through his word, what to actually do about them. There are things that are very, very nuanced that deserve and are honored by complexity. And having people hold that with you is a massive, massive gift. And then he says, if even then they refuse, then go and church. And if they still refuse, then treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. I think this could be defined as grow in your response to the situation, if they're refusing, if they're hardening their heart, if they're distancing themselves, if there's a lack of repentance, if there's a lack of openness, then it's cue for you to actually be more removed and to keep yourself safer. And the way we'll talk next week, even this step is shot through with love. To show somebody, hey, you're, you're not acting in a way that's safe, you're not acting in a way that's actually helpful, you're not acting in a way that actually I can come close to you. To say that to them is meant to actually be a gift to show them reality so that they could actually repent. We'll talk more about that next week. And the way he describes this is still meant to actually communicate something about your love for them. To go through all of this work to engage with them is to communicate how much you care and love. These boundaries are meant because you love them. This kind of escalation is meant because you love them. And what we see in the gospel of Jesus is that God matches our sin. He grows his response to match the need of our sin. As we get ready to take communion, I want to just kind of plant, plant us here for a moment to realize God is the one who perfectly does this. And what we see in the gospel of Jesus is that he has, he has brought us to a place where he's acknowledged the weight of our sin without minimizing it at all. There's a passage in the Old Testament where God defines himself in Exodus 34, and he says, The Lord, the Lord, the merciful God, he's gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sins and transgressions. This merciful, gracious God. And then he says, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. God holds together mercy and grace and justice. And this passage, scholars would say, is really hard to wrap your mind around. It almost doesn't even make any sense until the cross of Jesus where God shows his mercy and love and graciousness and his justice in the same moment, where God shows and extends his forgiveness to us as he absorbs the price of our sin on himself. He doesn't actually let the guilty go free. He pays the penalty for them. The price has to be paid, right? If you, if you remove the cost of a debt, you have to pay that. 
somebody backs into your car or breaks something and you don't make them pay for it, you have to pay for it. What God has done is actually paid in our place the penalty for our sins so that when he shows mercy and grace and forgiveness, it's not plastic or thin or dismissive or sentimental. It's substantive. It's gritty. It's substantial in such a way that it could actually bring about redemption for you. What we celebrate in communion each week is that God is the kind of God who is a peacemaking God who can extend mercy and grace and forgiveness because he bore the weight for our sin. And that shapes how we relate to each other in massive, massive ways. I asked you to kind of have this idea in your mind as we started working through these four G's. And I wonder now kind of what you would bring to Jesus and ask his help for. Would you bow your head with me for just a second? Would you just take a moment? Ask Jesus for what you need. Is it it clarity? Is it courage? Is it compassion? Is it hope? Would you just ask him for what you need for this situation? And then would you ask him in this moment, if you're a follower of Jesus, to help the cross of Christ inform what you need? Would you just say, Jesus, would you connect my situation to what we're celebrating in communion, that you showed mercy and justice in the same moment? Just ask him, even maybe supernaturally or mystically, spiritually, to communicate to you in this moment how mercy and justice fit together at the cross and how that applies to your situation. I want to pray, but if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to take communion. It's a celebration of the peacemaking God. His body was broken and his blood was shed. He says for the forgiveness of our sins. So you come and celebrate the reminder of how it was possible for God to reconcile himself to you, how your forgiveness was made possible. Tear a piece of the bread off, you dip in the cup, there'll be gluten-free here in the middle, and there'll be four stations at each aisle. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you just to stay in your seat and pray. Ask God to speak to you. Ask God to communicate his grace to you. Ask him to convince you if this is real. And you can also bring all of your questions to him. I'll be up here at the front if you want to talk some more if you're not a follower of Jesus. But, but come actually bring your heart to him and ask him to speak to you, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. And for those who are trusting him, come and take communion. Let me pray for us. And then we'll sing, Jesus, we ask for your help now in this space as we think about all the help that we need. Would you start us with a gospel help to engage our hearts around the truth and reality of your extravagant love, your self-giving love, your sacrificing love, your, your costly crucified love, your broken body and shed blood kind of love. Would you ground us in that? Let that give us hope. Let that change us. Let that let us feel grace and mercy. And would you meet with us now in this space? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, come when you're ready.